But as David has mentioned, we're in the middle of a sermon series on the Ten Commandments. We're actually past the middle since we're on the Eighth Commandment today. But this series is trying to answer the question, how is life intended to be lived? How is that supposed to be lived? And God answers this by ten words. Ten words, the way we describe the Ten Commandments. And today we're looking at the Eighth Commandment, so let's please give our attention to the reading of God's Word. The reading is taken from Exodus chapter 20 and Ephesians chapter 4. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land, out of the house of slavery. You shall not steal. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Father, we ask that uh, this morning your spirit would come and meet us through your word. Because what we need more than anything else is to encounter you and experience your grace and mercy to us. We come from all different places and backgrounds this morning, and some of us are burdened, heavy laden this morning, and we want to experience the freedom that only you can grant. Some of us are here excited to reconnect to you. Some of us are just wondering how we ended up in the church this morning after such a long period of way, and we feel so distant from you. And wherever we are, we ask that by your mercy you would meet us today, and we ask these things in your son's name. Amen. I've been saying that my goal from this series is to change the way we think about God's law and his ways. And God's law is not what we naturally assume it to be. You know, we assume his ways, his laws are going to limit us, right? They're going to limit our happiness, constrain us from what we really want. And each week we've been saying God's law is actually not a straitjacket but an expression of his kindness. And keeping the Ten Commandments are not the way we get God to love us more or approve of us, because properly understood, if you've been following the series by now, these are impossibly high standards that we are unable to measure up to. But when you know that Jesus is the only one who ever kept these Ten Commandments, that he fulfilled these laws for us, and these Ten Commandments are becoming an expression of the good and beautiful life that God intended to give us because he loved us. Now, this Eighth Commandment, it's an easy one. You shall not steal. And notice it's in the second person singular. Literally, stealing means to carry something away by stealth. And the question it's asking us is, have you ever done this? Have you ever stolen anything? Are you a thief? You know, um, I saw a survey where 90% of Christians in America believe they have never broken the Eighth Commandment, which m makes you think maybe they're breaking the Ninth Commandment, right? <laughs> because I, we like to think of ourselves as honest people, don't we? We will admit to being lazy, have struggles with perfectionism, low self-esteem, maybe even lust, anger, depression, and the list goes on. But the thing we don't want to say is, I'm dishonest, I'm not trustworthy, I'm a thief. 
Now, I'm not trying to lay a guilt trip on us this morning, but I want us to see ourselves as the scriptures intend and to allow these words to be a mirror into which we can look and see without distortion ourselves against what God says so that we would be convicted concerning ourselves. We would cling to Jesus, the only savior of thieves and dishonest people like us. So that's my hope. And this morning, I want us to look at this passage under two simple subheadings. Taking and keeping. Okay? Taking and keeping. Let's talk about taking. The Eighth Commandment says, you shall not wrongly take other people's stuff. It's easy, okay? So Ephesians 4 says, let the thief no longer steal, because stealing is robbery, theft, taking what doesn't belong to you. We are to hold sacred, we've learned the past few weeks, our neighbor's life. You shall not kill our neighbor's spouse. You shall not commit adultery. And today, our neighbor's stuff. You shall not steal. You know, the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 14, for the whole law is summed up in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see, one of the ripple effects of stealing is it violates human community. You know why? Because it destroys trust. Mistrust, it creates fear, isolation. We know it destroys friendships and even an ability to collaborate. And if you've been a victim of theft, mugging, you know what I'm talking about. You just don't forget it. You know, I remember I was in second grade at public school number 11 in Queens, New York, where I grew up. And I remember it's this time of year and you're getting ready for school and I went back to school shopping with my parents at our local Woolworths. It was a memorial, memorable day because I got a new metal lunchbox, composition notebooks, pencils, and crayons. And I didn't get the 64 box of Crayolas with the sharpener in the back. It was just too big in my mind for my bag. But I wanted more colors than the 8-pack or the 16-pack. So I had my eye on this 32-pack that came in a clear plastic case. So after a little bit of negotiating, I got my parents' degree, got it home. My mom, being the smart woman she is, she put a sticker on the case with my name on it. And I love these crayons. Maybe I love the box more. And the boy who sat next to me, uh, I'll call him David. Okay? <laughs> Generic name. We got along, I considered him a friend. But one day, my crayons were gone. Not in my bag, not in my desk, okay? And David, all of a sudden, pulled out of his desk the same 32 pack of Crayolas. He didn't have this before, I knew this, okay? And I'm looking at the box and there was a smudge, okay? Of adhesive exactly where my mom had put the sticker with my name on it. And I looked at him and I said, those are my crayons, I think. And of course he denied it. He said, no, 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 these are mine. And he said his mom got it for him. And I pointed to where the label was. I said, I think that was the sticker there. I think you peeled it off. 
Anyway, after some back and forth, our teacher finally intervened and I got my crayons back. But trust was broken, okay? I kept an eye on my stuff from that point on. Double checking everything, you know. And here I am, 45 years later, still talking about the crayons. Stealing violates human community because it destroys trust. You shall not steal. You know, we can be certain preaching this truth contributed to Jesus' crucifixion because Jesus went into the temple, do you remember, after he entered Jerusalem, and he goes to the religious leaders. And you know what he told them? Do you remember this? He said, you have taken my father's house, the house of prayer, and did what? You turned it into a den of robbers. You're thieves. And this is going to stop. This is Jesus being angry. And when Jesus exposed their greed, they were very eager to silence him. You know, preaching this definitely contributed to the loss of his life. Now, you know why? Because no one wants to admit that they are thieves and that we are not trustworthy. And you might be saying, well, I don't really steal You know, and maybe I was thinking that we were asking this question in our household this week, like, this commandment, well, how do you preach this? Because this seems so obvious. Well, don't take anything. And the more I studied and reflect, and you begin to realize, man, this is saying a whole lot more. Because how do we steal? Let me count the ways. It's some obvious stuff, right? Shoplifting, burglary, muggings. But there's all this other stuff, right? Some of us think that the government steals from us. We call that taxes. Some of us steal from the government, and we call that creative tax solutions. Some of us steal ideas, intellectual property. I know that's a big um, thing here. Lawyers who protect intellectual property are all over Silicon Valley. Writers steal words. Students steal answers. We call that cheating. You can steal credit due someone else for their hard work. You can steal another's reputation. We call that slander. We'll talk about that more in the coming weeks. Businesses steal when they fail to pay employees for the work they've done or maybe make deceptive claims about their products. We steal from our employer when we don't put in the work that we said we would and get paid for it. I had a member of my church uh, in Orange County in Southern California who got a job with the county assessors. And when she started her first day, her coworkers told her to slow down. You are working way too fast. All those people can wait. You're making us work too hard. See? When insurance companies don't pay for legitimate claims or when the insured make fraudulent claims, we are stealing or when business owners take advantage of shortages. We call that price gouging, right? And how about this? We steal when we don't pay our debts, when we say we will, and when we can. Romans 13, 7 says this, Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed. And you know how Paul ends this section? He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Love of the neighbor is the reason we are not to steal. Martin Luther says, not only are we thieves who steal the property of others, but those who seek gain by the loss of others. Let me say that again. Not only are they thieves who steal the property of others, but those who seek gain by the loss of others. I mean, Luther is beginning to raise the bar here to help us understand. We steal when we take stuff that doesn't belong to us. But also, and here's my second point, keeping what does not belong to us. Keeping. And I want us to spend the bulk of our time on this. You know, one of the more overlooked books in the Bible is the last book of the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi. And if you begin to read it, you begin to see it is concerned with things that are very relevant and modern because it's a group of people who are disillusioned with God. It is written to people who God has made some great promises and they look at their situation and their lives and they're saying, I experience this gap between what you said, God, and what I see in my life. And they're somewhat cynical, disillusioned. And the book opens with this. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? And through the prophet, the Lord accuses his people of a very deadly kind of orthodoxy, meaning they believe the right things they go to church, they worship, but they are all too ready to compromise when it is convenient for them. And the book goes through a whole lot of different things, but when you get to chapter 3, verse 8, it says this, Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? That's the people saying again, well, how do we rob you, God? In your tithes and contributions. They ask the questions, how have we robbed you? And the text concludes with, in your tithes and contributions. A tithe in the Old Testament is a standard of measure meaning 10%. God's people were to give 10% of their produce, their income to God and to God's work. They were to give God their best, first fruits as it is called, because it was an agrarian economy. 10% of their best, not their leftovers, not the produce that looked a little off, not the stuff you didn't want, you know, or the animals you didn't want. And this is what was happening 2,500 years ago. The people were giving but less than what God required, and they were also not giving their best. And God says, you are robbing me. And that's fascinating if you think about it. Because if it was just simply a lack of generosity, God would say, you're being stingy. He doesn't call them cheap. It doesn't say that. It says robbery, theft. And think about this. By definition, you can only rob someone when you take or keep what rightfully belong to them. Does that make sense? You know? So you can only rob the rightful owner. And the prophet is saying what? By not bringing your full tithes and offerings to God, we are stealing from God by keeping. 
you see, keeping what is rightfully his. It's saying something very profound here, right? Something that none of us really believe. The text is actually saying God owns everything we have. It's his. Everything we own, in one sense, is not ours, but entrusted to us by the true owner, you see? The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, who sees anything different in you? Because we spend our lives posturing to appear different, to separate ourselves and distinguish ourselves from the pack. And the passage goes on to say, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Paul is saying to the person who says, well, you know what? I'm self-made. Everything I have, I accomplished through hard work, through my ingenuity, through my creativity. And God says, well, who gave you your intelligence, the opportunities? Did you think you really created every opportunity you've walked into? And it's all because you just hustled? You know, what if you were born in a village in Pakistan with minimal opportunities for education? What if you didn't have an opportunity for education? Would it have mattered how smart you were or how hard you worked? You know, then how does it impact do you even get to go to college or grad school or the opportunities to apply to these schools? You see, everything you have in one sense, is a gift from God. And remember, God is giving these Ten Commandments to Israelites in Exodus 20, and they were just slaves, right? He says, I brought you out of slavery. You were actually owned. Don't forget that. That's why God says so much about stealing people in the next few chapters, okay? Because slaves, you own nothing. And God says, I have given you freedom. I have given you your stuff. You did not do this on your own. So don't steal. Don't keep what doesn't belong to you. You know, one of the ways we should be thinking about our stuff is that we are stewards. Um, think of yourself as kind of a wealth manager, maybe asset manager. And how foolish it would be if the funds that were entrusted to you, okay, you take that and treat that as your very own money and did whatever you wanted to do with it. If someone did that and they were managing your money, what would you tell them? Hey, that isn't yours. I gave you very clear directives as to what you are to do with it. And you would say, hey, if you're using that money on yourself, you are stealing from me. And that's why the scripture says... We are robbing, not that we're being cheap or stingy, but we are robbing God when we are not radically generous with what has been entrusted to us because our money in one sense is not our money. But you know what? I think none of us really believe this. But God has entrusted these things to us. And when our giving and our generosity and the lavishness of what 
we are not expressing, okay, is not shown to the world or to God. God's saying, you're robbing me because we are keeping what belongs to him and his purposes. Now, this is not fun to talk about. I, it's not. And um, for all of us who sit here thinking, I've never broken the Eighth Commandment, if you're one of the 90% who keeps saying, I've never broken that commandment, this makes it harder to say, now, I've never broken that commandment. Because we see it in our lack of generosity. Look, if you're not Christian here, just sit back and watch everyone squirm this morning, okay? <laughs> but this makes us uncomfortable because you can't help but notice how often Jesus talks about money. Not only is it addressed in the Eighth Commandment, but he talks about it a lot, doesn't he? We saw this as we were studying the Gospel of Luke. He talks about money more than prayer, more than heaven. In Luke 12, in one of his parables, he says, watch out, be on your guard against all sorts of greed. Because he thinks, we think we don't have a problem with it, okay? That we're not thieves. We don't believe that. But you know, three quarters of Jesus' parables refer to money in one sense or another because it is infecting our soul with a sickness that robs us of life. And, I've, and as you've probably heard me say it before, it operates always in incognito mode. The prophet Malachi wrote this 2,500 years ago in a very different context, and yet that question is so relevant for us today. Uh, a few years back, a uh, prominent sociologist did a study on Christian charitable giving, and they published it in a book called Passing the Plate. It came out in 2008, so it's not that old. But here's some interesting tidbits out of that book. The amount of household income contributed by the average Christian in America is, you know what it is? 2.9%. 72% of Christians in this country give less than 2% of their income away to all types of causes, anything. 9% of Christians give away 10% or more of their income. I read that as less than 9% tithe. Okay? And here's the one that was a little shocking, maybe shouldn't be. More than 20% of Christians give nothing away to anyone religious or non-religious. Now, being sociologists, they ask the question, okay, we have the most affluent single group of Christians in 2,000 years of the history of the church, and why don't Christians give away more? And the conclusion of the book is they trace a lot of the reasons, you know, it's like, I don't know where my money's going to, I don't know if I can trust the people, I don't know where the economy's headed, I don't know if I'm going to have my job, but when it comes down to it, people think of their money as my money and I'll do what I want with it. So we ought to make the assumption, well, how do we answer this question now? Are we thieves, right? We know what greed is. We know what these things are. 
And we know where to draw the line. And Jesus says, hey, when we think about a relationship to our wealth or money, we like to draw the line very far from where we think we are. Yeah, we say, all right, Eighth Commandment, that's again mugging, larceny, maybe fraud, you know, like that blood testing company. Or the guy who downloads the code from his company before jumping ship and going to the competitor. You know, and we think, oh yeah, that's what we're talking about. And the Bible comes back at us with an understanding of feeling that is much more comprehensive. And the reason it does this is not to make us feel guilty, because the scriptures want to heal our hearts. Our hearts. Because the reality of this, this is so uncomfortable that we kind of have to sit with it. And yet, Jesus is bringing this up and the scriptures bring this up because he wants us to be free and experience the joy of generosity and lavishness and working with God to build his kingdom purposes. You know, in the Old Testament, you know, 10% was like a number. It's helpful sometimes because you have a number. And I know some of you are thinking, well, Jesus never said you had to tithe. And that's 100% correct. He never talks about it in that way. And the New Testament is very conspicuously silent about what a number should be. But here's something that I remember um, when I was in New York and pastoring, I would hear Tim Keller say a lot. He said, you know, 10% was the standard for the Old Testament believer. And he would ask this question. So today, would you say we know more of God's grace and his truth than the Old Testament people of God? Have we received more or less? And he would encourage the church to say, hey, think of 10% as a baseline you're trying to get to. Give to the things that God cares about, to the poor, the most vulnerable, to the orphans, the widows, you know, those organizations that bring about God's kingdom to bear in this world, to missionaries, campus ministries, people who are trying to reach others for Christ. And that number isn't meant to be legalistic, some sort of 10% number. It's where we start. Because when you begin to experience God's grace operating in your life, when you experience the freedom that he gave you because you were once a slave and you're now free, and you've been forgiven, our relationship to our stuff, that changes. Let me give you a couple examples. You know, in the early church, the church was known for this. And I'm going to read you a couple of passages that may be familiar. But in Acts chapter 2, after Peter's amazing sermon about people's hearts being cut to the core and them being convicted, this is what it says in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Any had need. Acts 4, two chapters later, listen to what it says. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own 
but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. A Levite, uh, I'm sorry, Barnabas, a neat Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, here's what's interesting. No one is saying to them, you need to do this. No one's coercing them. No one's saying, this is what you need to do. But you know what's going on? They are experiencing God's free grace and mercy. And they are recognizing the need around them. They're saying there are people in need, and out of love for neighbor, they have grown in generosity. This was not being done out of a spirit of compulsion. But it was done out of love for neighbor, you see? Second Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, Paul says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Someone who gives out of great joy, you see. And the early church became known for its generosity. Ah, it was beautiful. It was attractive. It was something that God's people demonstrated simply to say, this is who our God is. Our God is generous. He is not stingy. Eye-popping generosity motivated by love for others. And imagine if we had that taking place today in our community. And what if one of the first words people associated with Christianity is generosity? That they care for the vulnerable, for those who are suffering. I mean, that would be an incredible witness and an encouragement to people to say, there is something distinct about this place. And why is growing in generosity a solution to being able to keep the Ten Commandments? Because I think we all know taking is wrong, okay? Keeping, that one feels a little hard to kind of understand. Because when we keep, you know what's happening? We are saying, God, I don't trust that you're going to provide for me. I don't think you're going to be enough. That you who brought us out of bondage, that you're going to provide for all things. I don't believe that you're the giver of life. And we have all of this anxiety and worry. And we live out of a mentality of scarcity. I have so little. I don't have enough. Look at the opportunities others have. I'm being shortchanged in my life. Because once you end up down that road, it gives you the rationale to do whatever you want, even violate the Eighth Commandment. You'll do whatever it takes to get ahead, whatever the cost, including theft or by keeping what you should. How can we be free? How can the thief stop stealing, as Ephesians 4 talks about? How do we do that? You know, did you notice in Ephesians 4, it says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, 
doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let your desire to love your neighbor stop you from stealing, to work hard in order to love your neighbor. This is the beginning. And in order to do that, you know what has to happen? Our hearts need to change. Why were the early Christians so generous? Why are Christians, when they are generous, amazingly generous? You know what Paul says? We read this in our assurance of confession. He says in 2 Corinthians 8, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know the grace that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. He says, you know what? You tasted grace. You know what it's like that someone gave you something you didn't earn or deserve. And he's talking about famine relief here, and he's telling the church, hey, you know why you should give? Not because I'm telling you to, not because you should, but because you have experienced great grace. Jesus was rich, he said, and for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Jesus has made you rich in him. What sets us free? Free to be lavish, generous, to stop taking, stop keeping, and give. It's not going to be guilt. It's not someone telling you, here's what you're supposed to do, or that they tell you and wag a finger saying you're stingy. It's got to come from a changed heart, knowing that you've been impacted by grace. Because apart from that, you're not going to be that lavish. And when you begin to see, God has treasured you. That he himself is your treasure. That he's going to satisfy every need that you have. When you begin to understand this, and that he's already done this through his one and only son, we not only give our money, we give him our allegiance, our lives. Look, if Christianity is just some formula for you where you once said a prayer and now you know one day you're going to go to heaven and you just are trying to be moral enough, good enough to ward off any catastrophes that might come along in your life, somehow appease God, this is all I want with the Ten Commandments, you're never going to know the joy of generosity. Never going to know it. You know what we need to remember? You and I are thieves through and through. This is what the Eighth Commandment tells us. And we know we can't keep this commandment. And we need Jesus to keep it for us. Because if you think you're disciplined enough and good enough to keep this commandment, you don't, you're n- never going to need Jesus' mercy or grace. We like to talk about how Jesus was crucified between two criminals, don't we? He died among thieves. He died with two thieves flanking him. Two were paying for the transgressions of sin that they committed. One was paying for ours, wasn't he? One was a thief because our thievery was accounted to him. One of those thieves that was next to Jesus 
was hard-hearted until the end. The other said to Jesus, remember me. And he said to the thief, this day you will be with me in paradise. That guy did nothing to earn Jesus' forgiveness. Absolutely nothing. But he received grace, unmerited kindness. You know, and when you begin to see that you've received the same when we should be branded as thieves and know we're beloved, that is life-changing, my friends. That frees us. That changes us. That impacts us. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we um, come this morning asking you to give us an extra dose of your goodness and mercy and kindness into our hearts today. Help us to experience the lavishness of your grace and mercy to us so that our hearts would be transformed so that we wouldn't take what belongs to us and we wouldn't keep what you have entrusted us to be signs and symbols of your kingdom. Transform us, Lord, in this way. Help us to know our Lord Jesus died for us to make us his treasure. And allow this to make us people of great generosity that represents you that we will go out and love our neighbor as ourselves. And we pray these things in your son's name. Amen.